This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham join me to talk about federal politics. Then author, essayist and academic Dr. Kate Ross-Manneth joined me in the studio to talk about her book, Small Wrongs, How We Really Say Sorry in Love, Life and Law. And then finally, Jean-Dominique Merlot, Chief Curator at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France and also Dr. Wallace Kersop, Adjunct Professor at Monash University, both joined me in the studio to talk about the 2018 Foxcroft Lecture, which Jean-Dominique is delivering at the State Library of Victoria on the topic Policing the Parisian Book Trade in the Age of Enlightenment. You're tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM in Melbourne. It's 102.7 if you have a wireless. And I'm speaking now with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. And uh, he joins me now to talk about federal politics. Hi, Ben. Yeah, good morning, Amy. How are you? Morning. Good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm all right. Hedging your bets? Uh, yeah, look, you know, <laughs> I'm not a betting man, but uh, life comes at you fast. Doesn't it? Hard and fast. Uh-huh, yep. uh-huh. As does politics, it comes out hard and fast. And um, certainly most political commentators had written off the income tax cuts package as a whole package because, as we said last week, there's about three stages in this package and Labor definitely supported the first part of that package, as did Tim Storer and some others. But we didn't have wide-ranging support from all uh, crossbenchers and parties for the full package and uh, and the really the people who had kept on flip-flopping were One Nation uh, and Pauline Hanson who is now down one senator uh, now that we have the um, senator heading off to the United Australia Party which is another fascinating development but um let's talk about what happened it was kind of out of the blue it felt like because a lot most people just assumed of course all uh all kind of parts of this package won't get through at once and there'll be negotiations yeah so last week the federal government passed their massive 144 billion dollar seven-year tax cut i mean a major major very important tax reform, if you want to call it a reform. Um, and, yeah, they are able to ram it through the Senate basically because the crossbenchers, led by Pauline Hanson, that great working-class battler, um, voted for these big tax cuts for rich people. So um, it's a huge win for the government, particularly mm. the senators, um, you know, the, the government front benches on the Senate like uh, Matthias Cormann and Simon Birmingham, a huge win for Scott Morrison, the Treasurer, and a huge win for Malcolm Turnbull. The government's achieved a historic flattening of the income tax scale. It's going to make Australia radically more unequal um, and it's going to put thousands and thousands of dollars of uh, you know, taxpayer dollars back into the pockets of uh, wealthy Australians. Exactly. Um, and let's talk about exactly what is in this plan, this uh, package of legislation that has been passed. It's now inevitable that it will uh, happen. Um, certainly, if another government comes in, Labor has said that they will uh, get rid of it. But that said, once these horses have bolted, it's really hard to get it back in. Yeah, it, um, is, it is hard, Amy, because... Um, now that it's passed the Senate, we'll assume that it's pa- it will pass the House, of course, because yep. the, the government holds the numbers in the House. It'll become law, and then for mm. Labor to change it, they'll have to repeal that law, and that will be difficult. They'll, you know, Labor will need 
just as the government needs the numbers in the Senate. So, um, you know, it seems unlikely that an incoming Labor government would hold the Senate, I think. Mm. Um, possible that... Well, it's rare for any government to hold the Senate. Rare for any government to hold the Senate, exactly. So um, I think we can assume that these tax cuts are here to stay and, um, and that's why they're so significant because... Uh, for a start, they're enormous, $144 billion. That's a very large amount of tax mm. revenue that will not be collected now. Um, it won't go to services that will now be unable to afford to pay for. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so that's money that can no longer go to schools, roads, hospitals, defence, the NDIS, you name it. Um, you know, secondly, uh, it's going to have a, a big effect on inequality, a very big effect on inequality because... Uh, the basically how it works is the, the richer you are, the more you'll benefit from this. So, I mean, one statistic that I think that's really borne out uh, is that if you're on $200,000 a year, you'll now be paying the same rate of tax as someone on $41,000 a year. Mm. So that's what we call a flat tax system. The rate is flat across a very large spectrum of income earners. Um, and now... People would argue that, oh, isn't that fair? You know, everyone pays the same rate. But the problem is, of course, that if you're earning $200,000, you have a lot more disposable income than someone on $41,000. You can probably afford a fancy accountant to minimise your tax. You might well own a house that you negatively gear. Uh, There's all sorts of ways that you can work out, you know, fairly loophole-ridden tax system to improve your tax position if you're wealthy. Yeah. you know, low-income earners on $41,000 a year don't have those opportunities. So it is very unequal. And, of course, the other problem is the rich are already getting richer in this country um, Mm. and this will just see them shoot ahead even more. Exactly. And really, I mean, if you you just said there, if you have a fancy accountant, you can reduce your taxable income. Uh, people could ne- could actually be earning more than 200000 and reduce their taxable income down through deductions so that they fit in that lower bracket. Oh, my word. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, that's very widespread even now. Mm. Um, you know, and Let's also look at what the implications are um, in terms of services. I mean, you mentioned, yeah, that's money that's not going to be collected. We're still in a budget deficit, by the way. You know, so do you remember the the debt and deficit disaster, the budget emergency? For years while Labor was in government, all we heard out of the mouths of coalition politicians was how disastrous Labor were at managing the budget, what an absolute disaster it was for Australia to be in a budget deficit, all of the debt that was being racked up for future generations to pay well i think we can now put to rest any inclination any understanding of the coalition as being good at budget management okay because uh while the budget's been in deficit they've announced massive tax cuts what will this do to the deficit will obviously make it worse uh you know so um now would be the time to be collecting tax revenue to store it up for rainy day to pay back that debt which Mm. by the way the coalition has racked up a lot more of than labor ever did uh you know so yeah i mean i think it really highlights the hypocrisy of those kind of uh, deficit hawks in the coalition. They seem to have gone very quiet now. They have. And in the budget that was delivered uh, this year, we discussed 
post-budget that really what um, the forecasting says in terms of their view that they will return to surplus is that somehow Australia will experience unprecedented wages growth, which we have not done for many, many years now. Um, It's going to jump up apparently to about 3.1%. It's about 2% now, roughly. I mean, what... um, does this just kind of show how ridiculous the kind of um, rhetoric is around returning to surplus and, you know, the coalition uh, having these two highly conflicting policies, which is we will return to surplus uh, very, very soon and yet we're going to give away $144 billion in tax cuts? Yeah, I mean, I think um, what it shows, I think, is basically the shallowness of our economic debate as we as we pursue it in Australian politics. We're fixated around uh, fairly meaningless numbers like the budget deficit or the surplus, which in the scheme of things actually don't matter that much in terms of the long-term economic prosperity of Australia. What matters much more is investment in infrastructure, investment in education, making Australia a smarter and more productive nation is what ensures our long-term prosperity. Well, this government has been pretty bad at that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and it will only get worse because they're giving away more tax revenue that they could have used to invest in things like higher education, primary schools, kindergartens, the TAFE system, uh, you know, let alone um, some of the other things that governments are meant to do, like build build roads, you know, build infrastructure. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a disconnect in our economic debate and we've become fixated on fairly meaningless budget figures. In terms of the, the wages growth, you're absolutely right. Wages growth is bumping along at 2%, very low levels, historically low levels actually. Um, and the reason for that, I think, is because the industrial relations system in our country has become radically imbalanced uh, in favour of bosses. So totally. it's much much more it's much easier for bosses to keep wages down than it used to be. It's almost impossible for workers to organise and to strike. Um, and that's tipped the balance in favour of bosses. Even in industries where employment is approaching full employment, it's still apparently very difficult for workers to negotiate pay rises. It is really nitty difficult, isn't it? Um, And certainly you need that bargaining power and also you need more jobs available uh, than there is talent available to have some competition and so that uh, employers try to up the incentives for uh, employees, potential employees to join them. Yeah, I mean, we are obviously seeing employment growth and that's good. Um, Jobs are being added to the economy. Everyone's in favour of that. Uh, however, I don't think we're at full employment yet. I think no. that's pretty obvious. Um, and the Reserve Bank will well, be raising interest rates if we want. Yeah, there's plenty of underemployment. There's plenty of precarious employment. There's the gig economy that people talk about all the time, mm. all your delivery drivers. Uh, they're obviously not being paid minimum wage. There's rampant wage theft across the economy, as we saw with 7-Eleven, as we saw with Caltex. Uh, workers just literally not being paid what they're meant to be being paid. Um, we've seen uh, all sorts of revelations in the hospitality industry about uh, widespread wage fraud, people you know, basically being paid cash off the books right through that industry. That's endemic. 
So, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which um, employers are already not playing by the rules and not paying the wages they should be. Um, yes, if we had a tighter job market, if we really were close to full employment, if it was hard for employers to get people for the jobs, then we would expect wages to be increasing. But we're not there yet. Mm. Let's talk about uh, the July by-elections which are coming up. Um, We don't need to go into individual seats. I'm more interested in the fact that uh, it has become somewhat, and I'm really not sure how, uh, a bit of a Labor... um, mild jostle, uh, just, just, and it's not even a leadership challenge. There's not even a close to any sniff of anything like that, but it is interesting that, um, we've seen more of a contest for ideas and perhaps it's because the national conference is coming up in December and the labor left and labor right, um, are trying to put forward their own views and and to start gaining some influence in the public arena. But Anthony Albanese um, gave an address and it was particularly uh, around Gough Whitlam and the legacy of Gough Whitlam. And uh, he quotes Gough Whitlam, which I think is worth doing because it always brings us back to what we are meant to be doing in politics, I think, which is to better uh, Australians and also our environment. Um, And he, uh, Albanese quotes Gough Whitlam in his 1969 election campaign launch. When government makes opportunities for any of the citizens, it makes them for all the citizens. We are all diminished as citizens when any of us are poor. Poverty is a national waste as well as individual waste. We are all diminished when any of us are denied proper education. The nation is the poorer, a poorer economy, a poorer civilization because of this human and national waste. That's really strong rhetoric. Um, then and it's even stronger now because we don't see that level of, I guess, strong uh, posturing from Labor really and certainly we've got Bill Shorten who is a Labor right as the leader at the moment with Anthony Albanese clearly a Labor left and he won the popular vote from his party when we had that leadership battle. What do you think about um, what he's come out and been talking about and why he's trying to, I guess, talk about inequality in such fierce terms? Well, I think it's a welcome return to some of Labor's old principles of social democracy, uh, you know, and I think that's that's timely, I think, from Anthony Albanese. I'm, I'm pleased that he's talking about these kind of things, uh, particularly at this juncture in Australian politics. It's you know, uh, I think imperceptibly, but but in, in sort of an accelerating fashion, the Turnbull government has slid to the right, um, particularly since its re-election in 2016. And if you look at where the Turnbull government's at at the moment, they're having internal wars about whether to do anything at all about climate change, whether to reopen a coal plant here or there, uh, whether to privatise the ABC. Uh, these are right-wing ideologies that are far to the right, not just of ordinary voters, but pr- probably even of liberal voters. Uh, and yet that's where we're at in terms of the Turnbull government. So it's welcome to see Albanese pushing back on that and um, you know, recalling some of Labor's greatest moments in terms of implementing broad-based education for all, uh, building houses was another thing that Albanese talked about. The housing crisis in this country is endemic 
um, and it's it's really biting for lower income earners, you know, let alone for people who don't have an income. Um, you know, the the media, as they want to do, have framed his speech as some kind of move in the leadership play. I, I just don't think that no. is. Um, and you know, even if it were, there's really no mechanism for Albanese to challenge. There's no way that he could do it with uh, Labor's constitution. Um, he can't really even call on a spill. So, you know, I think that kind of leadership rhetoric that comes from the media is just lazy reporting, yeah, it's frankly. simplistic. Yeah. I mean, there is nuance in this situation that no one's really picked up on. No, and uh, what's Albanese trying to do? He's trying to open up debate within the Labor Party for, uh, you know, a return to social democracy, you know, to, exactly. to bring a, a future shortened government further to the left. Yep. And, and, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily about the leadership. I think that's about the battle of ideas. Well, exactly. What is decided at National Conference becomes their platform and that's what they will be campaigning on in the next election. Yeah, but, you know, look, while we're talking about that speech, I mean, one would point out that uh, there are opportunities denied uh, to many in our society, including under Labor policy. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about refugees and asylum seekers briefly. You know, it's Labor policy, for example, to detain asylum seekers. Well, some would argue, indeed Jed Carney argued in her maiden speech, that that is something that uh, is is a waste. That, that That's something that detracts from everyone in Australian society. It's a stain on our national mm. character. It is, and it has really far-reaching consequences that I don't even think many people realise uh, will be happening for years to come. And Albanese did somewhat mention that issue, um, he's, but it was a very fleeting reference. He said, you can protect our borders without losing our national soul, but it does hint at something a bit deeper, which is that it's not just a policy, it's something which is really um, a humanity, a human rights issue that's just so fundamental to basic respect. Yeah, and if we're talking about poverty, um, as Albanese did, then Labor's still got a, a long way to go on poverty policy as well. Uh, you know, in their last six years of government, uh, they did some good things in terms of homelessness and they did some reasonable things in terms of housing affordability, but they didn't really do a lot to address that really sustained endemic policy, poverty at, at the bottom of mm. the scale. They didn't raise the rate of new start, for example. That's the first thing yeah, that needs be to the, be done. The very first thing you should yeah. do if you're talking about poverty would be to raise the rate of the, the safety net. I mean, that's that's a no-brainer there. So there's a lot to be done if Labor's serious about talking about poverty and inequality. Well, it's good that they've started at least and um, that there's some form of vision uh, because what we've seen recently with the coalition government is a lack of vision, an overarching vision, except for what we heard at the last election, which is jobs and growth, jobs and growth, jobs and growth. Well, I think there is a vision. There's a vision of upwards redistribution, and we're seeing that with. But these is that income. a vision? Like that's a that's a singular <laughs> focus, is that not? Uh, a vision well, is a little bit more horizontal and wide-reaching, I would have said. Yeah, no, I'm not seeing too much horizontal and wide-reaching vision from the Turnbull government. Uh, yeah, no, a pretty singular focus on rewarding their special interests. Yeah, well, uh, it's a bit like a, a 1% vision. Pretty much, and they've been quite successful in implementing that vision. So, I mean, this is what I talk about where I say the, the Turnbull government's lurched to the right. Mm. I mean, if you think about what the implications of these income tax cuts are. They're very, very significant. 
the government's still trying to get the rest of its company tax cuts through. That's another $30 billion that will go straight into the pockets of big companies, basically shareholders of big companies, including many foreign shareholders. Um, so these are huge redistributions of national wealth towards the 1%, absolutely. Mm. And do you think the company tax cuts have any likelihood of passing given that we've seen this change in getting the income tax cuts through? I mean, does that indicate that the numbers might alter? Possibly, yes. I mean, we've seen that One Nation, and particularly Hanson herself, is incredibly you know, flexible. I mean, she's taken a huge different number of of positions on this stuff. And when it comes to the crunch, you know, the government's been able to cut deals with her. So Cormann and Birmingham seem to have her ear and they seem to be able to get legislation past her. Mm. So yeah, I do think the company tax cuts are a good chance of passing now. Yeah. Ben, it's been great to speak with you about this and uh, and we'll speak again, I know, and, um, and it'll be very interesting to watch what happens this week with those company tax cuts. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me regularly to talk about federal politics. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. And you are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. I have the absolute pleasure of having Kate Ross-Manneth join me in the studio to talk about her book, Small Wrongs, How We Really Say Sorry in Love, Life and Law. It's out through Hardy Grant. Kate is an author, essayist and academic, and she lectures and conducts research at Macquarie University in Sydney. So she's made the trip down to talk about this book and I welcome her now. Hi there, Kate. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you and to be able to talk about a topic that I guess I hadn't really thought about in such great depth. But once I looked at this book, I thought, what a brilliant idea. And it certainly is something that needs further investigation. And that is the topic of remorse and how one can be remorseful, whether one can tell that someone is showing true remorse for an action that they may have committed, whether it's a crime or something less serious. So, Kate, first of all, uh, let's talk about this book and what it is, because your background is as an academic and you certainly have conducted research into a range of areas from the perspective of an anthropologist and also someone who studies performance. Could you talk a bit about that lens through which you're working with this book? Absolutely. So I I have a background in a discipline called performance studies, which is a marriage between theatre and anthropology and not only looks at the ways in which, um, you know, performance operates in in our common understandings of performance, such as theatre, dance, opera, but also um, a sort of a smaller P performance. So looking at uh, funerals, weddings, rituals, ceremonial displays of mourning, um, the ways in which we perform ourselves in everyday life. Um, so, uh, yeah, of course, you know, for about 500 years, the metaphor of theatre has been used to describe or the, the trial courts. Um, it's a common, it's really common language that we, we associate with courtrooms. And if you go into a courtroom, you, a, a layperson just looks around and thinks, you know, starts thinking in kind of really theatrical metaphors. Um, so 
you know, you, and yet, of course, the participants caught up in the system are not thinking that way or rarely thinking in those terms at all. Um, what's also interesting, of course, is that, you know, courtrooms are, we expect truth-telling. We expect, you know, to get down to the bottom of what really happened or who someone really is or um, how people might tell the truth. And yet, at the same time, courtrooms demand enactments from people. So there's a sort of a nice... I don't know, there's some kind of paradox there, I think. So I I'd started turning up to courtrooms and I, I started observing um, the ways in which remorse worked in these spaces. Um, I've been long interested in the idea of, of emotion and, and the puzzle of bodies and emotion, like how we furnish ourselves with feeling and how others recognise it on us. So I, yeah, designed this study, um, an ethnographic study, where I'd go and I um, would sit in case after case, observing the way that people comport themselves in court and then, um, and, you know, what judges, how judges assess things and then talk to them. So I would, you know, I was hanging out with judges and magistrates, asking them how they assess whether or not someone's really sorry, um, hung out with criminal lawyers, um, forensic physicians, caseworkers, guys on parole, offenders, victims, um, parole members of the, of the New South Wales State Parole Authority. What a lot of um, people don't realise, I think, is that um, remorse is a, is a mitigating factor in the justice system. So judges are legally obliged to take a person's remorse into account when formulating that person's sentence or parole date and yet how judges assess remorse is unclear. So it's a really rich area of study. (laughs) Yeah, it's groundbreaking really. It's something that's quite early in its understanding, isn't it, that we are still trying to understand how a judge can assess something which is quite subjective and it's partially based on judgment That's a skill really, isn't it, that a judge has developed over a number of years is to be able to weigh up evidence to judge someone's demeanour and character and to look at the subtext and to see what's really going on underneath and not just take things at face value. I think that's what we hope. I mean, I think yeah. that's our that's our great that's hope. our perception. Yeah. <laughs> that's our great hope of what is happening. You know, mm. that judges have got to assess crimes in relation to the law. They've also got to sit opposite people and decide who they are and what to do with them. I think it's a I think it's a hard job. The judges I spoke with were, uh, I don't know, they, they were they were in research terms what gets called self-selecting, which means that they were the sorts of judges who opted to talk to a researcher such as myself and were prepared to reflect on their own working practice and their own Mm. biases and the way they come to decisions and the way they assess remorse. And so I was just so grateful that those judges, um, you know, did agree to speak with me and I, yeah, it was a real honour to sort of have that access. Yeah, it's quite a rare opportunity, isn't it? Would you say that they had a greater level of self-awareness or would they be looking in on themselves sometimes thinking, how am I assessing this person? Do they have a certain level of personal removal from their own process or situation to the point where they think it's as objective as it could be? I think so. I mean, look, a number of them said that, in fact, just through the process of having the conversation with me and through our interviews, they 
came to new understandings of the ways they were even assessing remorse themselves. So, mm. which is, I think, what we need to get to is a kind of a this reflexivity of where one asks oneself, okay, well, how am I actually assessing this thing? You know, judges, they need evidence. Like, they can't just, uh, a kind of a defence counsel can't just stand up and say, Your Honour, my client is very remorseful. Mm. And the judge look at the, at the person in the dock and go, yeah, I accept that, or not, nah, that doesn't sound right to me. So judges require evidence, and I asked judges what, you know, what, well, what counts as evidence of remorse. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it is absolutely a case-by-case basis. So you've got, you know, sometimes an early guilty plea might count as evidence, um, but that depends on the strength of the Crown case. So if someone walks into a police station and confesses, and, and it's a cold case that they police don't have any leads that may be seen as evidence of remorse. Whereas if the case is, um, you know, they've got overwhelming amount of evidence pointing, you know, that would help with a prosecution and someone pleads guilty, that's sort of less compelling evidence of, mm. of, of, of remorse. In cases of fraud, there might be financial reparation. There might be letters to the victim, letters to the court. Psychologists might write pre-sentence reports. So an offender might sit with a psychologist and a psychologist might assess them and decide that this person is remorseful. Except the judges I spoke with were really reluctant to accept that as a form of evidence, especially if the Defence Council paid for that psychology report a judge kind of think well sometimes you know that those psych reports that based on a one-off encounter with a psych Mm. might might kind of give us nothing other than I don't know just what the psychologist thinks is going on rather than are we really getting to the bottom of anything I asked judges whether they took demeanor into account and there were a number of them were quite incensed that I asked that (laughs) and sort of suggested, no, no, we don't, you know, we can't read anything on people's body language. Don't be ridiculous, you know. And and, uh, especially when I was sometimes sitting there and watching the offender in the dock and I was wondering what was going on inside that offender and what Mm. whether there's this internal feeling called remorse that's happening and whether the judge could feel it or what, what was going on. But judges would then sometimes in the next breath do talk about reading visual clues of people. And so that sounded to me like a little knotty. Judges were often impressed when people actually got into a witness box and spoke compellingly about their own remorse. Let's talk about that because a lot of defenders don't get up in the witness box and are advised not to because they're not often required to go up and testify and go under cross-examination. And so there are many times where uh, you only have their body language what do judges do then when all they've got in terms of a defendant's primary evidence or what mm. they're providing to mm. the judge is whatever their counsel says or whatever a uh, a prison officer uh, who might have observed the prisoner in jail or a psychologist? I mean, what happens when that's really the only evidence you've got is a second-hand account? Then it's not given as much weight that that's that's the kind of the long and the short of it really Mm. and of course you know what's interesting at this stage is that these are offenders not defendants because they've they've either pleaded guilty or they've been found guilty um so you know it's a whole other bucket of worms when you know someone has um pleaded not guilty and but been found guilty by a jury or something Mm. and then they want to try to argue that they're remorseful and that that is tricky because you know well if you were remorseful you would have 
admitted Pleaded that you'd guilty. done it. Yeah. yeah. In, anyway, look, in, ca- in cases of manslaughter, murder, that, that's a, then a different issue again because sometimes mm. people plead guilty to manslaughter but not to murder. So they say, yes, I killed the person, but in fact it was... There was a case I write about in the book where a woman ran over a young man with her car. She pleaded guilty to manslaughter but was found guilty of murder. And so remorse worked in a kind of interesting way there. And when I say remorse, I mean the way the judge decided that, yes, she was remorseful. But mm-hmm. the whole other issue about hearing from the horse's mouth, which is what how judge one judge talked about it like it you know you want to hear it from the horse's mouth is that in the local courts where magistrates are sometimes hearing 100 matters a day or something there just isn't time you just can't have everybody get up and and give some kind of remorse statement because it just the process as it is is just so fast and magistrates have got to get through yeah, so much. The workload's huge. Um, and I think magistrates just get really quite annoyed if, if there's this one after, you know, another low-range prescribed concentration of alcohol, you know, gets up and says, oh, I'm so, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm so sorry. And there are problems there as well. Judges only have to take evidence remorse into account if evidence is presented. And if a judge then deems that this evidence has shown a compelling kind of presence of remorse if that makes sense mm-hmm. so you know there are cases where remorse it doesn't even make an appearance there isn't really a sort of a the defense counsel don't even really try to really present much evidence around it anyway let's talk about remorse in more detail because you write that the etymology of remorse means to bite again referring to the bite it holds on the conscience and on the spirit I mean, that's a really deep internal existential struggle that someone would be feeling if they were feeling true remorse. To you, what does remorse mean? Is that what it means to you, what the the etymological meaning Mm. of it is? Or did you think when you were observing these cases and the sentencing hearings, something else? I kept asking judges, you know, is it a feeling like is it an emotion I was asking? So what, because what is remorse is one mm. of the things I asked judges. And they they wouldn't necessarily say it's an emotion, but they definitely all agreed it at least started as an internal feeling and that it had to be expressed. And, you know, there had to be some kind of outward expressing of it. So we were quickly in that land of interiority, exteriority. There's a fantastic law scholar in Canada who makes a distinction between apology and remorse and says that while apology refers to the anguish that someone feels for having violated the norms of a moral community, a demonstration of remorse expresses that anguish. It's 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 a kind of suffering made visible. It's an outward yearning for atonement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that was an interesting distinction. Mm. It is particularly given your lens, which is performance, mm. seems like that would lend itself better to someone who has a more exterior world or can express themselves more visibly than someone who may be feeling remorse and not be able to express it in a way that is socially identifiable. How many ways are there to express remorse? One of the things that that some of the judges talk to me, first of all, they sometimes they would talk about spontaneous displays of emotion in the witness box or something. And 
you know, we can kind of feel cynical about that. But like when you're in the courtroom as an observer and you're observing that, gosh, it's compelling. Like it's so overwhelming. And, you know, like I watched a young man who I thought was this kind of petulant, slightly brattish kind of person and he'd spent seven years in prison for killing three friends and seriously injuring a fourth in a car accident. So he was on drugs and he, he was living in this country town and he on the night of his 21st birthday he crashed his car into a pole, speeding. It was an accident, obviously. And three friends in the car were killed and he seriously injured a fourth person. So he spent seven years in jail for manslaughter and then he, he was on parole but he was mucking up on his parole and the parole authority brought him back into the into the courtroom to basically trying to, you know, have a chat to him to go, wait, mate, you know, do we need to put you back in prison or what's going on here? And this guy turns up, he's 27, and he just looks really petulant and stroppy. And then he gets into the witness box and starts talking about the event. And you realise he's totally grief-stricken, like this guy is weeping. He's just saying, I've killed three friends, I've killed three mates, you know, I've got to live with this for the rest of my life. I was just like, oh my God. So, you know, that was a moment where I went, okay, so when judges had been talking to me about encountering a spontaneous display of emotion, Mm. um, that I'm seeing it and that's what that looks like and, gosh, it's compelling. And, you know, judges cry. So judges, elderly judges were crying to me during interviews, recounting to me having encountered remorse um, expressions such as that. Another, you know, way in which one can express remorse, I think, is sort of what one does from the moment of the offence. So it's what I kept referring to as a remorse dramaturgy. It's like, you know, in the case of this woman who killed this young man with her car, it the, it happened, she struck him, and then she tried to lift the car off him. She was going hysterical. She was, you know, pulling her hair out by the side of the road, screaming and crying, trying to lift the car off him. And, and then subsequently the series of events after that as well. And the judge... I spoke with in that case really found that quite compelling that the remorse was immediate he said and he could see it from the moment after the offence you've then got these other instances where like I talked to this guy who'd uh, been convicted of heroin possession and supply uh, but that was 30 years ago that that case but I was interviewing him now when he's in his 60s and he talked about how it took a long time for him to really feel remorse for selling heroin he said one of the most profound things which was that you know remorse is an old person's game and he just said the time it takes to really align your individual behavior and individual acts with a larger consciousness or larger you know societal Mm. consciousness is really slow I don't know, I thought that was really interesting. The philosopher Raymond Gator says that remorse is a disciplined remembrance of the moral significance of what we did. And I think it really takes discipline to, um, you know, to reconcile who you think you are with what you've done. Mm. And that example you bring up of David, the heroin seller and user, was it the policeman that he told, he said, oh, well, if I wasn't selling it, someone else would, and then I'd buy it from them. So, you know, how are my actions really affecting heroin use if all I'm doing is fulfilling a need that someone else is just going to jump in and do when I'm not here to do it or I've run out? That's a great example of the fact that at the time 
he didn't at all identify his situation with the bigger picture of selling drugs and how that has a bigger impact on society and how potentially someone who bought the heroin may have died or, you know, had greater impacts on their family life than he is aware of and the moral implications of of that. One of the beautiful parts about your book is that you start talking about David and his reflection upon, you know, needing that distance. And then at the end, Judge Solomon and you actually encountering that judge and telling him that he made such a difference to David's life. Could you talk about that response that the judge had? Gosh, that felt like a great moment. Like I, you know, because I'd done that interview with that guy, David, and then David had said, you know, it was this guy was called Judge Solomon. And I was like, okay, okay. And then, you know, down the track, I found myself interviewing Judge Solomon and who was just such a lovely judge. And uh, and I just thought, oh, bugger it, I'm going to say something. And I said, oh, you know, actually 30 years ago, this guy came before you. And I told um, the judge the story of, yeah, of, of David and what how Judge Solomon had kind of changed David's life, really, because David had said to me, listen, if you see him, send him my regards, tell him it turned out okay, tell him I stayed off. I stayed off the heroin, which he did, and David, you know, went on to lead a, I don't know, just a... a, Well, he went on to live. I Mm. mean, he really was not going to live, I think, if he'd continued in the life he was living. And he had his family back as well. mm, Yeah, he had had reconciled with his wife, he had his daughter. I mean, uh, yeah, because quite a great... That was a very moving and heartening story. Yeah, so I told Judge all of that. He was so happy. He just was like, oh, he said it's great to get one right. And I think he even, I didn't put it in the book because it, it sounded great in person, but it just, on the page, it would have looked a bit naff, but he said it's good to save a soul. And he was being slightly facetious, mm. but not. And mm. I, I was, it was really beautiful. And I thought, oh, and of course like remorse in the, in the courts it's a theological hangover so it was used to kind of save people's souls so when we were executing people someone stands at the gallows they express remorse and then we execute them and then you know everyone's satisfied that their soul has gone to heaven it keeps the moral and social order so re- mm. um so redemption sort of saves their souls and no one ever said it but soul saving continued to sometimes preoccupy the common law, I think. And, you know, you don't want to think about it in that way, but there is that real, I don't know, there's still such a, we, we, we really hang on to this hope of redemption or at the very least transformation. We want rehabilitation. Change is the crux of the matter, you know. Yeah. Well, we're looking at the moment, particularly in Victoria, our prison populations are growing and we need to build more prisons to actually fit the population Mm. that is being sentenced. And part of that is retribution, part of that is deterrence. But you in the book talk about a range of training courses and programs that prisoners or people who are detained undertake in order to understand their actions and a part of that is to think about the victim and what they've done to the victim and to express empathy or have um, an understanding of what empathy might mean if they weren't feeling empathy for the victim. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a kind of what I was referring to as a kind of a remorse-producing ingredient or something in some of these um, therapeutic programs. I mean, I I spoke to a guy who'd spent 15 months in Long Bay Jail and he said that when he was... And this guy was quite educated and, you know, a middle-aged 
guy and he said that he ended up writing this pamphlet in prison called um, How to Feel Genuine Remorse that he circulated to the um, his fellow inmates, giving them a kind of a list of how to be truly remorseful. And, I mean, it was... I mean, it's the kind of thing you would tell a child, you know, think about what you've done, you know, think about your actions, think about how even though you're feeling angry and that you might have also been, you know, a a victim in some way, think about though how your actions have impacted, you know, so there was this kind of little list thing that he'd circulated to, to his fellow inmates. As we know, the, the prison population, it's just, you know, full of just profound social disadvantage, cultural disadvantage. I don't know, like a judge said to me, um, it was a retired judge, I should say, he said to me, you know what, we could release 90% of the people in prisons and society wouldn't look any different. So he felt there was only about 10% of the prison population that were a serious danger to society. I'm not an expert in questions around justice reinvestment programs but you really want to get behind that kind of thing I think yeah Um, mm. and it does bring up issues that we've seen like I think in that um, that chapter when you're sitting with the parole board you're quite struck by how fast it moves how little kind of debate there is and also how little remorse is playing in that particular situation Mm. Yes. So I sat in on private meetings of the New South Wales State Parole Authority and this would have been through 2012, I think, 2011, 2012, 2013. So I, I can't comment on the, the way the practices are working now, but mm. at that time, so the parole board was making 10,000 decisions a year. In a three-hour meeting, they would make um, decisions on 70 matters, the parole of or, or not parole, of 70 people. Um, and each matter was given about three minutes of discussion. And it was made possible because of all the paperwork they'd been given beforehand. And then they'd sort of made decisions that they came together and then compared mm. each other's decisions and made an ultimate decision about each person. Yeah, remorse didn't play much of a role at all. And, you know, a parole board member said to me, look, we're, we're just an administrative body. It's, a, it, it's quite bureaucratic. It's a different sort of thing to a judge's sentencing so you know I was aware of that and yet remorse like in our minds in in our in the community's mind we would think remorse would be really important like we'd go come on where's your remorse we need the moment a law scholar has pointed out that you know it's that moment with remorse where someone the offender um, separates herself from the act and joins the moral community in condemning the act. Mm. And so as the moral community, we want that moment because we want the offender to be reintegrated because we want them to join us in condemning the act that, that has happened, that they've that, that offender is, has, has perpetrated. So, you know, we, we, we hunger for it. There's a really uncomfortable relationship between remorse and rehabilitation. So, you know, I can rehabilitate myself and not feel remorse and I can be remorseful and not rehabilitate myself. And, you know, and that is just very possible. So I, you know, punch someone in the head, I break my wrist, that I won't do that again because I broke my wrist, but I'm not remorseful. (laughs) And we're, you know, serial um, drug addicts, um, alcohol addicts Mm. um, might come before the courts regularly and each time they've sobered up and they're just so remorseful, so remorseful, so remorseful. And, and you know, I did speak to a judge who said they really did in those moments go feel this person is so sorry, like they're so remorseful mm. and yet they're going to come back and do it again. Because mm. they're presumably in a different state of mind 
once they aren't engaging in the substance or the activity that is part of the addiction at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of um, the question of rehabilitation and what you were just asking earlier about at what point can we say someone's changed, this ended up becoming quite a massive kind of organising principle for the book for me, which had to do with time, event, transformation, change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if the idea is that we want transformation, the question, of course, then is what does observable change look like and how can you tell someone's changed their ways how can you ever be sure? Like how many yeah. moments of not doing what you might have otherwise done have to accrue to form an identifiable matrix of transformation? And so that question about time and the that the remorse depends on time for its existence, questions of time, change, event, became this massive organising structure and then also helped inform the way I, I ended up going about writing the book, which is a hybrid memoir. It's not an academic book. It's, no. not, it's not even written as a piece of investigative reportage or journalism or anything. It's, it's a creative nonfiction book and it's this hybrid memoir. There's a lot of you in it, not just you as the observer of these courtroom situations, but you're weaving your own life and particularly your relationship with your father, as well as your own family, your daughter and your husband. Exactly. So what I noticed is that, you know, the courts and what happens in the courts, it's all about event, right? That's what crime is, right? It's event. Something happens. Someone does something to someone else. Someone does something. There's an agent. Mm -hmm. There's cause and effect And then there's story, there's a beginning, middle and end. We get narrative arc in the courts all the time. That's the business of the the lawyers. That's what they need to do. They they present story. Judges read story. This is an account. We've got the police facts sheet. You know, this is what happened in in this order of events, right? Mm -hmm. Mostly, though, we live our lives in background. So we live our lives in the unmarked, the uneventful, the ordinary, the common the everyday, the quotidian, our domestic lives. We get up, we go to work, we come home, we have our relationships. And yet our ideas and concepts of remorse emerge in that background space in really unacknowledged ways. And then we use those concepts to judge people who come through the system. So what I wanted to do in the book was to animate that background, which is hard to do when it's not narratively driven. Mm. So I made a technical and creative decision to write about dimensions of my life that read as sections of memoir but are not memoir in the usual sense of the way memoir is written. Memoir is usually written because something big has happened to someone and that person's now going to write about that thing. I was writing about the quotidian. So I wrote about things that I knew that a lot of people would experience a lot. So I wrote about a kind of a, uh, a, a heartbreaking relationship with a parent. So I had had for a lot of my life quite a difficult relationship with my father. No big thing had happened between us, but just he was quite a distant, angry man for a lot of the mm. time, then changed very late in life. I wrote about um, this really difficult period in my marriage with my husband. Again, nothing big happened, no big event, you know, just 
wow, we found ourselves after the birth of our baby in a kind of like a state of trying to work out how to make a marriage work. Yeah. Um, well, your relationship transforms, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Massively. Yeah. And you have different identities. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, with, and so the, the event that happens in the, it's, you know, the birth of the child is this kind of quite extraordinary event for, I mean, it's so, someone once said to me, it's like throwing a grenade into a marriage. Like it's, 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 extra, I mean, brilliant, amazing, you know, mm. you want, you're so delighted this baby's arrived and it's so, you, nothing can prepare you for it. Um, so I write about postnatal depression as well, which is incredibly common experience. So these sorts of threads that run through and the way that remorse can stretches and breathes in interesting ways in those background spaces, mm-hmm. but that ultimately the ways in which that, that I don't know, our, we explore that in our interior lives, questions around moral agency, remorse, what it means to be a good child, what it means to raise a moral being as a parent when you've got this little kid. All those things work to formulate our unacknowledged concepts of what remorse is and how we expect to see it. And then we carry that into the ways in which we view the justice system and judges do it too. Like I had an interview with a judge and I was talking to him and at one point he just sort of looked quite, I don't know, he looked away and just said, oh, I hurt someone very badly once. And I looked at him and I thought, oh, my gosh, of course, you know, in thinking about the remorse you're expecting to see, you're thinking about your own remorse and, and what you think remorse even is or how it's even been circulating your own private life. So I, that was one of the big reasons why I wanted to structure the book in that way and made that decision to have the event and background working um, interweaving through that, the book. We see throughout the book that there is something unspoken going on between you and you're trying to bring it out and to have, a, I guess, a really open, direct conversation and just deal with it now. Let's be pragmatic. Like, let's just fix this because I just, I'm feeling tortured by the fact that we're not the way we were and you mm. want it to be back that way. You still love each other. It's really, you know, clear that your marriage is a really strong thing, but it's not how it was before your child came along and you just have that moment which was really poignant for me of okay we need to draw a line under this and just forgive each other accept what's happened and move on and to me then I thought about um, victims families and why remorse is so important for them because it presumably would make forgiveness easier or acceptance at least of what's happened easier if you know that the person who did it realises that what they did was wrong and then feels some kind of deep regret and torture, I guess, for having done it in the first place. Yeah, look, I spending time with a homicide victim support group was like, it, it was so profound. Oh, my gosh, you know, yeah. So I went to um, Wagga Wagga, which is sort of five hours west of, um, of the coast of in New South Wales, so five hours inland, and um, uh, hung out there with the Homicide Victim Support Group meeting that was happening there. And I talked, like I asked them about remorse and I was really, like because I was so nervous to even say 
perpetrator's remorse because I, it's like I didn't even want to use the word perpetrator because these people had lost siblings, parents, children to homicide. And I I just wanted to go so delicately. So I sort of just said remorse and I was just kind of hoping that, of course, or assuming they would just make the connection. Of course, we're talking about the perpetrator's remorse. Mm. And initially people were saying, a lot of them said, we've seen no remorse, you know, and people were going, there was a woman whose 71-year-old um, mother had been tied up by three men um, because they wanted to rob the place and the the mother was in that just left tied up and it took her 10 days to die and this woman was telling me that you know those none of those men were, have said sorry or like shown any kind of remorse so I, I, I've several of them there at the meeting were just kind of almost confused when I brought mm. it up because they just hadn't encountered they any, haven't seen remorse no there has been no like maybe in the trials people were pleading not guilty so there just was never this moment where there was the remorse moment, I guess. Yeah. Then a couple of them suddenly said to me, Kate, wait a sec, whose remorse are you talking about? Do you mean my remorse? A father said to me. He said, my adult son, you know, was stabbed to death one evening while walking home alone, like just stabbed to death by a stranger. And he said, and I was like, I feel remorse. He's telling me like, what if I'd done something differently? Maybe my son would still be alive. And I was like, he had nothing to do with the events of that death. And yet, so those people, they, they, came away feeling remorse even though they had nothing to do with the events of the death and that was just totally profound. I did speak with one woman called Debbie. She was fantastic. She'd gone through a restorative justice program in the prison. She met with the man who'd murdered her brother and when going into the meeting, the jail authorities said to her, what don't you want from this from this encounter? And she said, I do not want him to say sorry. So that was the thing she didn't want. And I said to her, you know, why? Why wouldn't you want that? She said, because, first of all, I wouldn't even believe it if he said it. Second of all, it minimises my brother's murder. Thirdly, if I do believe it, if I did think it was genuine, that would humanise this guy and I do not want him to be a human. So that was extraordinary. Mm. So, so what was she going to get out of that, out of curiosity? What was What was she looking for? She wanted to go and tell him what, the impact that this entire thing had had on her life and on the life of her children. So she went and she met with the guy and she sat opposite him in the prison and um, the guy had a nun sitting next to him because the guy had found God in jail and this infuriated Debbie because Debbie's Catholic and she was like, no, you can't have found God in yeah. jail. You know, there was... Um, so she started just telling the guy, this is this is the effect it's had on my life, right? And she said she visibly saw the man's shoulders just collapse and him, I don't know, just shrink. And she she sensed, she goes, I felt the remorse. It was like, and it made her feel good. So it was almost like on the face of it, she's saying, no, I don't want remorse from this guy. Mm. But when it came and it came on her own terms, mm-hmm. it she found it very healing and it was a spontaneous kind of unexpected expression like a visible bodily expression yes it wasn't him coming into the meeting going listen debbie so glad you came i've got something's been weighing on me for the last 12 years i need to let me unburden really sorry yeah Mm. exactly yeah so i think that 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 to me like hanging out with those people was just 
a total honour and I thought that's so complex and interesting. Yeah. Like I think because a lot of us would think, oh, surely if the offender feels remorse and shows remorse, surely isn't that healing for everybody? Mm. And it just isn't it's quite no. as simple as that. Yeah, mm. and it certainly would be contextual as well based mm. on the crime that's being committed. As you say, the judges also take into account like how brutal is this type of murder, for example. Yeah, so they have to take into it. It's called the objective seriousness of the offence, which would sound so strange to us lay people because we're thinking, like, if someone killed someone I loved, I'm like, they killed someone I loved! Yeah. You know, that is the the worst thing that could ever happen to any... I, I don't... Like, don't even talk to me about where this sitting mm. on a scale of something, right? But what, of course, a judge has to do is go, okay, what kind of murder was it? And, you know, was it a hitman who'd kidnapped someone and tortured them for three months before killing them? Was it a, I mean, you know, was it a gunshot to the head from the, I mean, I can't, can't, you know, you just can't imagine that, yeah, this is the work that they do. And and it just seems for a layperson so cold, I think, um, and Mm. yet necessary necessary I suppose you know yeah. they, they, necess- they have to ask those questions mm. and but for a lay person it's um who, who's been affected by the crime it's sort of unbearable because you're just in agony exactly and it's highlighting that there is a very extreme end yes there's an extreme end which of course yeah. is rare and you know you wouldn't um you know so but but is there so yes. trying to sort of appreciate that there's, there's this scale I want to uh, finish this conversation talking a bit about some of the other research that has been part of this experience for you. You do academic research as well, and this book is not academic. You've got two expressions of the one project project or body of work. How do you look at them and how do you see their contribution and the way that it's engaging with society? I did the the big body of research and I And always, this is around 2010, 11, yeah, 12, 12, 13. Yeah. So between two, two, 2010 2013 I did the field work in the courts and and then I started really doing a lot of writing around it. I I published a couple of um, long form essays in the monthly um, and that was great to get that work out there. So that then is a different form again because that's, you know, literary journalism or, you know, long form journalism, that's a different form again. Um, With the academic stuff, so yeah, um, having, getting the research papers out um, is a fantastic exercise. It really sharpens your thinking. You know, with academic work, there's no subtext. It's all out there. And you, you're you really clear about the gap in the knowledge out there in the world. You're explaining how your research project is addressing a gap. And then you start, um, you explain your methodology, and then you start mapping out or, or analysing the data, you know, presenting the data, analysing data. And so you're really in that world. Um, it's been important because there is an absence of empirical research around um, the ways that the courts assess remorse. So for about the last 20 years or so, law scholars have seen this anomaly, recognised this anomaly that, wow, we don't, how do judges assess it? And there have been studies where they've assessed judges' judgments. Um, there hasn't really been empirical research in the sense of ethnographic research, like where you go and you kind of ask a judge and go, okay, look, I know you wrote this in your judgment, but how are you feeling about, you know, what is remorse and how do you assess and doing a kind of a different form of study. So doing an um, interview-based observation, participant observation-based study is going to yield kind of different sets of knowledges around this. So that's why I was doing 
that those kinds of academic those academic research papers. Obviously, the long form journalism stuff is a it's kind of more of a it's more investigative journalism, I guess. And with the work of judges essay I wrote for the monthly, that got nominated for a Walkley Award, um, which I was delighted about because I was like, okay, great, yes, this was sort of seen as an in, a piece of investigative journalism, which it was, you know. And it really, in part, came about because during an interview with a judge, um, I said to him, I was, it was a slightly cheeky question, but at the end of the interview, I said to him, what haven't I asked you that I should have asked you? It, what didn't I ask oh, you during, yes. yeah, during yeah, this yeah. interview? Which is also in this book. Yeah, yeah, and he said how we sentence people. And I was like, what do you mean? You use intuitive synthesis. And he goes, but what does that mean? I was like, what do you mean? What does it mean? You use it. What do you mean? Does it mean? And so then it sort of opened up this entire thing about the crazy um, sentencing legislation in New South Wales. Which so is that's, crazy. It's and crazy. mathematical. And kind of weirdly math, phony science, this yeah. weird thing. So that was what, um, so that the work of judges essay in the monthly was about that. With this nonfiction book, I wanted it to really, I wanted the reader to read this thing and suddenly have a a kind of a thinking and feelingful sense of an effective sense of uh, remorse as it works in the most interior way in our lives, in the most domestic, ordinary, but also really interior way. Mm-hmm. And then how that then sits opposite the interesting and sometimes crazy ways in which remorse works in the courts and I wanted the reader to suddenly think to have that feelingful sense of like wow this thing that's so soupy we're now being asked we're asking people to then perform this thing in this courts some people who come from profound disadvantage people you know what wow this is how are we doing this and you know I don't know the problems of this, and and what what does it even mean to just be in a human relationship at all? You know, if human yeah. relationships involve moral matters, so that was a, just a different objective, I think, with this book. Mm. Yeah, was to make it really relatable in the sense of here's how it's applying throughout your life without you possibly even realizing it. Yeah, and then here's the performative aspect and a way that it can or cannot be measured or judged. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Kate, it's been amazing speaking with you and I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk about this and it's Thanks, fascinating Amy. the research you've done. Yeah, it's so lovely to come in today. Thanks so much. Oh, great. Thank you. And that was my interview with Kate ross Manneth, and she is an author, an essayist, an academic uh, based at Macquarie University in Sydney. And we were talking about her new book, Small Wrongs, How We Really Say Sorry in Love, Life and Law. And really the the whole point of this book, I guess, is to explore remorse uh, in our day-to-day lives, but then also how it plays out in the legal system. And certainly it's something which uh, is only really recently being examined uh, in an academic sense and which of course Kate has made a major contribution um, through her ethnographic work of really um, observing up close uh, judges and all the other people who take part in that um, legal process and how we can really understand remorse. So if you wanted to listen back to any of that uh 
audio, you can listen back on SoundCloud uh, later this afternoon. You can also listen back on a Triple R On Demand streaming service and uh, it will be podcasted and available via our homepage as well. Three. Triple. And you are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM. This is 102.7 in Melbourne. And uh, I have the pleasure of having two fantastic people in the studio with me um, to discuss a lecture that's happening at the State Library of Victoria. It's the Foxcroft Lecture for 2018. Uh, And the lecture is entitled... Uh, policing the Parisian book trade in the age of the Enlightenment and uh, it will be delivered by Jean-Dominique Meuleux and also um, I have with me in the studio one of his colleagues, uh, adjunct professor Wallace Kersop, who is from Monash University and um, also is an expert in French language, literature and culture and has a very strong interest in uh, books himself. So I'm really excited to welcome Jean-Dominique Melot, chief curator at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris and Wallace Kersop. Hi there, Jean-Dominique. Hi. Hi. It's great to have you. I'm very pleased and honoured to be there. <laughs> thank you. And thank, thank you. you for coming in. For inviting me. And Wallace, lovely to have you with us too. Well, I'm glad to be here too. Excellent. It's so great to have you both. I, As soon as I saw this lecture, I jumped up and down <laughs> slightly and thought what an exciting thing to explore because... The Age of the Enlightenment is known for its um, proliferation of culture, mm-hmm. science, rational thought, philosophy, mm-hmm. um, theatre, music. There's so many things happening where Paris is really the centre of culture mm-hmm. in Europe, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the Italians think they might have competed in, in music, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a really important period that we're looking at. Um, before we jump into that and look at the Enlightenment and what was happening in Paris at the time, I wanted to first up talk about Jean-Dominique, your work as the chief curator at Mm. the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. That uh, sounds like a wonderful job that you have. Um, What do you do in a normal day at your job? Uh, I'm a specialist of early printed books, especially uh, 17th and 18th centuries. And, um, well, my job consists in uh, (coughs) treating, cataloguing, identifying, locating uh, early printed books, trying to make um, scholarly catalogues and preparing digitization of books in Gallica, the famous uh, uh, French uh, national digitized library, and so on. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a very important job for yes, uh, not just historians to use, mm-hmm. uh, but also I'm sure the general public mm-hmm. would be very interested mm-hmm. and engaged in what is held at the bibliotheque. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have readers from everywhere. Uh, internationally <clears throat> and we also have many contacts with these people um, in the reading rooms but also by correspondence emails 
and so on. Mm. So yeah. the internet has made it easier to uh, access the research or documents that you hold? Easier and heavier at the <laughs> same time because I'm obliged to spend more and more time in answering, replying <laughs> questions asked by emails. Yes. So it's it's a bit heavy now. <laughs> well, what what kind of things do people ask about? Do they ask Jean Dominique? Do you know whether we have mm. this document? This document, uh, if you can compare with uh, another copy, which is preserved in a certain department uh, within the library, etc. Or um, please uh, help me to identify this author or. Uh, an anonymous work, for example, which is, uh, well, the author is not revealed, so help mm. me to, to find it or help me to compare with uh, another edition, for instance. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just one of the many things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and mm. there's a lot of engravings at this time as well. So mm. not just printed word, mm. but visual In imagery. Visual imagery. It yeah. takes more and it's more and more important during the age of enlightenment in the 18th century. We have more and more illustrated books mm -hmm. and sometimes uh, scientific books with uh, many figures. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. Wallace, just so people can understand where you're mm -hmm. coming from, um, you lectured and worked at Monash University um, mm. for quite a long time. You're still an adjunct professor there and you're doing a lot in retirement, um, mm. it seems. Mm -hmm. What was your, um, if you had to narrow it down, what were some of your passions in um, the study of French culture mm. and language? Well, <clears throat> more and more I concentrated on uh, book history, mm. the study of um, books, especially in the 17th and, and 18th centuries. Um, alongside an interest in 19th century Australian books, but that's another mm. matter, <laughs> not for today. <laughs> yes, very different. Um, so let's talk about the Enlightenment mm -hmm. and we can look first of all at uh, Louis Fourteenth, the Sun King, mm -hmm. who is very well known, I would say, in mm -hmm. history and certainly mm -hmm. he was very influential in terms of the culture um, in France mm -hmm. and uh, the music I just played there was something which uh, King Louis Fourteenth mm -hmm. certainly supported um, that composer mm -hmm. and uh, he supported a range of composers like Lully. Mm -hmm. um, he certainly did ordain or um, promote mm -hmm. different artists and mm -hmm. writers in mm -hmm. the period in which he is mm -hmm. reigning mm -hmm. and this is the early part of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Could you talk, please, Jean-Dominique, mm -hmm. about what was happening in Paris mm -hmm. and the wider France at the time mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the culture that mm -hmm. was beginning to um, flourish, the new mm -hmm. things that were happening in books, mm -hmm. um, in music and what mm -hmm. the political environment was for mm -hmm. that. Were, you know, how regulated mm -hmm. or controlled was the production of culture? Mm. Uh, Louis XIV played a, a great part in centralising culture, centralising within France 
but also within Europe, trying to to create a, a European Republic of Letters and Sciences too, because he created, thanks to Jean-Baptiste Colbert, his famous prime minister, he created academies, royal academies, mm -hmm. which played a very important part in um, making authors, scientists converge to to Paris and make Paris a capital for letters and sciences. Yes, so you it, played a key mm. role as a patron. Exactly. Mm. Uh, pensioning <laughs> authors, pensioning scientists, creating uh, Académie des Sciences, mm. Royal Academy for Sciences. Mm. And many people would say mm. he was a very visionary king. He had an idea mm. of what he wanted France to be known for and that mm. he wanted um, France to be the cultural leader, the mm. inte intellectual leader of mm -hmm, Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, I mean, mm. what were some of the people that he supported or the ideas that he was supporting at the time? He tried to... <laughs> Uh, to pension foreign authors to foreign scientists uh, in order to counterbalance other influences to mm. centralizing in Paris was a, a mean to avoid <laughs> contest, uh, contest, uh, protests yes mm -mm -mm. and mm. that that's really interesting mm. um, that Paris was really the mm. centre of this. Mm -hmm. He um, built Versailles. He obviously didn't build it himself, but he, he had the idea <laughs> for Versailles and certainly... But he, he had some distrust towards Paris. Yes. Yes, mm. and although mm. nowadays it's mm. not very far no. <laughs> on a train, it's very close, there is that um, mental distance mm -hmm. between Versailles, which seems to be very mm. closed, enclosed, mm -hmm. and um, a melting pot for high society, mm -hmm. the, the aristocrats mm -hmm. of the Ancien Regime, mm -hmm. um, versus in Paris, presumably he at times had paranoia that mm -hmm. things were happening in Paris um, that didn't suit or didn't fit with his vision or ideas. Mm. What, did he have... Um, he was obliged to accept the situation. Uh, they, um, Paris and Versailles were complementary, I think. Mm -hmm. He did accept that. But he, he also try to focus on Versailles influence. Mm. Influencing Paris. Mm -hmm. Influencing Paris. Yes. Mm. And so in terms of his influence on mm. Paris, mm -hmm. what do you think were the most interesting influences? In literature or arts? Or? Yeah, in literature, mm -hmm. perhaps, seeing as we we're talking about books. Mm-hmm. Uh, Versailles was um, well a place to promote new ideas mm. and to submit them to the king and then it was relayed uh, by Paris by capacity of production in Paris yes that's 
what I can assume. <laughs> yes, well, some mm. of it mm. isn't documented. We're basing mm. things on mm. people who were at court with Louis the Fourteenth who mm -hmm. observed mm -hmm. what was happening mm. and how he operated. Um, needed to be multiplied by Parisian influence yes. and capacity of production. That's a great point because mm -hmm. all of the production was not at Versailles. No. It was really... Well, it was um, only on the fringe. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. It still is kind of on the fringe in a way. <laughs> a beautiful fringe. Um, so mm -hmm. let's talk about also, um, before we go into the book trade, mm -hmm. just a little bit about Louis XV because mm -hmm. he is also a key figure, mm -hmm. a key person in this period. Mm -hmm. um, he reigned between 1715 and 1774, mm -hmm. so most of the 18th century Mm -hmm. um, and he was uh, Louis the Fourteenth's great. He was succeeded by mm -hmm. um, his great grandfather. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of Louis the Fifteenth, wha mm -hmm. what difference was there in the the kings and how they viewed culture and mm -hmm. uh, Paris? Uh, mm. Louis the Fifteenth uh, had less influence. On the cultural life, he he had no precise political project for culture. Mm. Uh, things were already created by the predecessor. <laughs> so he, he was a man of culture, anyway. Yes, yeah. I know mm -hmm. he appreciated porcelain uh, a, a lot. Yes, for instance. Yeah, and theater and mm. music and. Um, Mm. <laughs> so really, there was a lot of continuity of of vision, a lot of the same. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Wallace, um, would you like to, to add anything in terms of um, the political context that mm -hmm. we're operating in in the mm -hmm. Age of Enlightenment and the, the spread of ideas mm -hmm. which happens through the book trade? Well... <clears throat> The whole period is marked by, uh, well, contrast between authoritarian impulses, which, which come especially from Louis XIV mm. uh, and less successfully from Louis XV, mm. and then, of course, all the centrifugal forces of people wanting to do their own thing, bring in new ideas, mm. so you... Uh, and in 18th century Europe especially, you have a number of centres uh, outside mm -hmm. Paris and outside the Kingdom of France <laughs> producing books in French that the French authorities disapproved of. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so you have smugglers bringing books in across the borders. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very long and complex uh, story, but it's, uh, mm -hmm. but it's a very interesting one. It is, it is, and there are um, many key actors in the story really mm -hmm. of the book trade mm -hmm. and poli the police um, the book police are just one key mm -hmm. uh, group of people who were operating in this environment mm -hmm. um, yeah I, it's really funny to think that there was a police du livre because it's why, do you, why would you need to police books? Um, but this is a, a very different time. Um, so, first of all, I'd really like to know, uh, Jean-Dominique, in terms of um, where, where in your lecture you're going to be talking about Joseph... Uh, Joseph Demery. Demery. He was a, a police inspector 
but specialized uh, specific uh, yes especially in in uh, books and uh, controlling the book trade and controlling the new publications and he had to elaborate several censuses of authors uh, booksellers peddlers etc in yes. order to be very well informed of what was uh, published and being prepared inside Paris. Mm. So essentially, was mm. his job to surveil, mm. surveil. the many people mm. in the book industry, mm-hmm. in the book, um, yeah, guild, I guess, and mm-hmm. and then to make sure that they were. Um, not publishing things that were dangerous mm-hmm. to the state. Exactly. What do you? What was something? What would be cl- classed or looked at as mm. dangerous? What is dangerous mm-hmm. at, at this time? Uh, protests uh, against uh, royal uh, monarchy, um, <coughs> scandalous books. Mm, in terms of uh, morals uh, <coughs> and also uh, I would say uh, mm, books published by sects uh, such uh, as a Jansenist sect mm. which played a, a, a great part during the 18th century it and was uh, mm, yeah, so Jensen- a place for protest to mm, it's a, a way to concern <coughs> pub, the public opinion in France and to protest and uh, challenge um, the royal policy. Mm. Yes, it, mm. it's really a very powerful mm. way to get ideas out to a bigger audience, mm-hmm. to many, many people outside of Paris as well, mm-hmm. out to the people in uh, the, the country areas of France, which mm-hmm. was um, most of, most people didn't live in Paris. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't as densely populated. It mm-hmm. was um, obviously much more spread out mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of people living in France more broadly. Mm-hmm. You're right. Uh, there were, however, more than 600 thousand people living in Paris inhabitants in Paris and more than 20 million people in the kingdom of France mm. uh, at this time <laughs> it's quite Give amazing an ID. <laughs> yeah. yes Mm-mm. and um, and so in terms of uh, the people that were dangerous Mm. who were putting forward ideas mm. that w- might lead to protest, that might create mm. unrest. Mm-hmm. Um, one person that springs to mind would be Voltaire. Mm-hmm. And I know he was observed <laughs> to some extent. He had political views that were very controversial at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the figures or people that we might know that um, this policeman, Joseph, mm. was surveilling, or even people we don't know. Uh, who were some mm. of these people? As you've noticed, he, he made several records about very famous writers. For instance, Voltaire. <laughs> He's a, a bit controversial figure. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, because he's very well recognized uh, by public opinion but suspicious at the same time and uh, Diderot too was uh, mentioned in his Historique des Auteurs this famous author's file <laughs> and he was also very suspicious in the police officer's eyes <laughs> yes why do you think that was the case why was Diderot and Voltaire Diderot because of the Lettres sur les aveugles for example which is a very relativistic uh, opinion about morals <laughs> And Mm-mm. Wallace, perhaps you um, can add to that and, and talk a little bit about the significance Mm-mm. of Voltaire and Diderot and why they were one of many hundreds Mm-mm. of people who uh, Joseph Demery were, was surveilling and taking very careful Mm-mm. notes. Mm-mm. Well, uh, I mean, Voltaire was a, an international celebrity uh, mm-hmm. from quite early in the piece, I mean, (laughs) virtually from round about 1720, so that Mm. you have more than half a century of Mm. uh, interest. And, of course, he's not living in the Kingdom of France. He's Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) at a distance, safe uh, away. Uh, Diderot, on the other hand, uh, was in Mm. France and, Mm -hmm. of course, had... uh, various difficulties as a result of that and uh, and the career of Diderot is full of conflicts with the authorities uh, su- surveillance by the book police and so on and so forth i mean the the whole author file that uh, you've been talking about is is just one aspect of this and the other side mm. the one that uh, Jean Dominique will be talking about in particular mm. on, on Thursday is the file relating to the booksellers and mm. printers mm. who of course were the one the medium by which this material went out mm. to uh, to the public mm. uh, key actors for mm. public opinion mm. that's an excellent point these mm. are production houses mm that make all of this possible. Mm-hmm. That um, And so in these printers and production houses, mm-hmm. how many were there across this Age of Enlightenment? Did they start out quite small and grow very quickly or what was the uh, number? No, not so much because there was a numerous clauses among the, the Parisian Guild and the other guilds uh, in the provinces so it was limited mm. but uh, inside the community inside the guild <coughs> there were more or less important people who made good moves as the policeman said <laughs> <laughs> for example uh, the famous publishers of the encyclopédie Diderot's encyclopédie yes mm. they became rich <laughs> well yes <laughs> Because it was not a very popular because, book. Not only because of the encyclopedia, mm-hmm. but they made good moves too, mm-hmm. and sometimes uh, not so licit, not so legal. <laughs> so our police inspector uh, watches them very carefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, in terms of the consequences... Mm-hmm of doing something illegal or Mm -hmm. not quite above the law. Mm. Um, 
what what were some of the consequences? Because I know many people were uh, imprisoned in the Bastille, mm-hmm. and that was um, one of the consequences. It, it might be, yes. Yes. But uh, one of the most important roles of the police uh, at this time was to avoid judicial procedures to gain autonomy towards uh, the justice, mm. uh, the parliament in particular. And so the, the power of the police also consisted in uh, anticipating and trying to stop uh, misdeeds <laughs> or delinquency before any trial. Yes. That's a, a key policy of the police. Mm. So it's mm. about preventing. Mm. Preventing more than repressing. Right. Mm-hmm. And what do you, mm. what are some of the key in, key things that you mm. can do to prevent these things from happening? To, be, to be informed, thanks to informers mm. uh, uh, from different environments, but uh, particularly from uh, book professionals, uh, book binders, peddlers, uh, people, go-between people. Yes. <laughs> Men or women. Women played also an important role. Mm. And so... Um, as informers. As informers, <laughs> as right. Mouche, as they said And at this time. Mm. Was that dangerous... Mm. for them to be informers? Yes, uh, it might be, yes. Because they were boycotted by the majority of the other booksellers. Yes. If known, (laughs) of course. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yes, so it's not popular to be on the side of the police. It had to remain secret. Yes. (laughs) Well, mm-hmm. France has a long history of not necessarily, you know, being on the side of the police. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, it's, you know, protest uh, is a yes, very uh, important part the, of the French par- history. The Parisian police is uh, considered as uh, founder of the modern police mm. because of its capacity of uh, capability of uh, anticipation and information Mm. okay so I mean there is um, Mm. I'll I'll head to you Wallace Um, Mm -hmm. there's just so much to talk about (laughs) in a very short time (laughs) and we're running up to the clock but Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the uh, I guess the works the the publishers themselves seem to be less famous I guess nowadays Mm -hmm. I'm sure they were very well known Mm -hmm. at the time Mm -hmm. Um, but could you share with us some of the most important publishing houses that existed in Paris that um, were perhaps doing things that were a little bit politically controversial Mm -hmm. um, you know that might be contrary to the state or or the Mm. king's interests Mm. well I guess the one that I would point to, and it's sort of later in the in the 18th century, is Paul Cook, uh, who eventually took over the encyclopedia. Um, and Paul Cook came from the north of France, 
I mean, it's a Flemish-type name in, in any case. And, uh, uh, and he built up by far the biggest business in uh, late 18th century France, an enormous business, in fact. Uh, I mean, people sometimes talk about France being, well, as uh, President Bush uh, once famously said, the French don't have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, but Park Cook in, in the 18th century was probably the mm-hmm. biggest book entrepreneur in the whole mm-hmm. of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was, um, as many of the booksellers were, playing with on both sides of the table. Uh, that, that's the sort of thing that happens. Um, I mean, they're playing along with the authorities on the one hand yes. and, uh, well, on the side, working with the others. And, uh, so it makes a very fascinating story mm-hmm. and the, the role of the police is only one part of it. I, I Personally, I've been interested in the mm-hmm. role of censors because there's some <coughs> interesting documents, manuscript documents in the University of Melbourne Library which illuminate uh, aspects of this too. But uh, yes. anyway, that's a, that's a long other story. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it is. Um, so there's a lot of subversive behaviour mm. happening at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the notes that uh, Joseph Demery uh, created were very careful, um, very well written. He had beautiful handwriting. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the things that I found very interesting is and that you say is that um, that often people weren't given physical descriptions, um, <laughs> but the really important people were described physically by Joseph mm. Demery, and um, mm. he he described sixty seven of them in uh, the particular mm. document we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and and some of them are about their height, like he said. You say, uh, for instance, Antoine Urbain Coustelier, printer and publisher, was said to be quote small and with a rather thin thin face. Um, and then Charles de Poilly's face is said to be brown, and the same for his beard. I mean, they are very quirky, a bit funny. Um, I'm. <laughs> what was the purpose of giving a physical description? Mm. I think that the purpose was to inform informers, to give them instructions about recognizing such or such person. So they needed to be recognized from a certain distance. Mm. That is why you rarely find uh, eye color, for example. Because it's no use from a distance. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and mm-hmm. presumably something mm. that is very distinct about them. Distinct about, yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, so not very flattering. So, uh, <laughs> not always. <laughs> <laughs> no. But uh, it is uh, connected with uh, the military experience of Joseph Demery. Because first he was a, a military officer, a captain of dragoons, when he was recruited uh, before being a, a police inspector, so and at a I very think he, young he, age. he brought um, this uh, experience uh, in his new job, um, describing people to to avoid desertions, for example, <laughs> in the military environment. <laughs> yes, yes, Mm-mm-mm. and his career mm. in the military started mm. very early. Yes, he was very young. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and uh, and I think you said he he married a police inspector's daughter. daughter. <laughs> yes, so it's all in the family. <laughs> it's almost a police dynasty. <laughs> Exactly. Yes, yes. Um, and so in terms of um, some of the people that uh, Joseph Demery is surveilling, not mm-hmm. just the publishers and um, not just the uh, authors, authors mm-hmm. I mean, what are some of the other people, the key people mm. in that industry? Uh, peddlers. Mm. Mm, peddlers inside Paris and also outside Paris because he, he made many surveys about uh, provincial uh, libraire forain, uh, that is, uh, uh, provincial booksellers, but uh, kind of big peddlers <laughs> carrying uh, hundreds and hundreds of books. <laughs> and were they subversive? Mm. Were they doing things that were... Partly subversive. Yeah. That is mm. what... Uh, uh, Wallace <laughs> talked <We're> about. <laughs> yes. yes. Mm. Uh, what are some of those things? Well, uh, what one needs to understand is that the trade is on the one hand very mm-hmm. heavily in religious books and mm-hmm. educational books mm-hmm. and law books and law so books. on and so forth, mm-hmm. all perfectly respectable things. Yes. But on the other hand, there's money to be made by selling subversive books mm-hmm. as well mm. or... Uh, Pornographic books, mm. because there's a trade in those as well, so on and so forth. So it's uh, and the anybody selling books uh, is well ipso facto suspect of uh, doing both things, and that's partly why mm-hmm. uh, you have the surveillance to try to cut it off at the pass, as mm-hmm. it were. Yes. So it was very comprehensive, hmm. these activities that the police were conducting. Hmm. Um, you uh, talk about why, um, like the title that hmm. Joseph Demery has given this, which is, um, it hmm. has histoire, histoire, which is history. Hmm. Um, why was that uh, significant? Uh, histoire is a way to um, encompass a biography and career of each individual and uh, especially um, to mention um, judicial antecedents for example the judicial background of each person because uh, the police had uh, very well classified archives <laughs> so it was used uh, to write uh, each record mm. Mm. and uh, it's mentioned inside uh, for example uh, such person was arrested uh, at such date etc uh, for such or such reason mm. so it's a it was hi- traceable yes mm-hmm. a historical <laughs> record historical records mm. yes it, it includes a judicial background of each. Yes. And it was um, funny that you said he didn't get their age right very often. He thought that they were older. Older, often. (laughs) He just wasn't a very good judge of age. Maybe. I don't know exactly. Yes. Maybe. uh, No. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, but it's an example of how a historical record mm. 
is still not always accurate. No, it's it, one person's... It, it is not so important for him. The, yes. The important is to be able to recognize such or such person and the age mentioned age is an age of appearance yeah not the exact uh, mm. the exact age uh, established on registration <laughs> yes yeah, so it has a very practical purpose practical purpose for informers mm. to recognize <laughs> <laughs> it is um really very very interesting um if anyone wants to look through the records mm -hmm. themselves, they can in the book that you mm -hmm. co-wrote with um, some of your colleagues. Mm -hmm. The book is called La Police des Métiers du Livre à Paris au siècle euh, des Lumières. Excuse my French. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and Jean-Dominique, um, you co-wrote that book. Mm -hmm. or And, you know, it's a very interesting um, collection of sources mm -hmm. and an important mm -hmm. um, one to have available mm -hmm. um, in terms I'm just I'm going to have to finish the, mm -hmm. the interview but um, your lecture is sold out at the moment mm -hmm. um, people can join a waiting list if they want to see if people can't go last minute they might get mm -hmm. get in to see it um, what are you doing in Melbourne? Um, are you going to be doing anything else while you're here? Uh, after the lecture? Yes. Oh, some visits. Uh, thanks to Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> Meeting some interesting Hi. people. Yes. Well, uh, Jean-Dominique is going to go down to the Carmelite Library in Middle Park mm. uh, straight after this session. Because... Wow. Uh, he wrote two books about the Carmelite monastery in Pontoise. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got uh, other interests apart from the Parisian police mm -hmm. in the 18th century. <laughs> very, very uh, diverse interests. You interest. know, the devote party was very much watched. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> two. <laughs> well, that is amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you both for coming in and spending your time with me and um, sharing your expertise. And I'm sure uh, people can go to the lecture, um, hopefully, if they want to. Um, and perhaps it will, it will be recorded if anyone misses out. Mm -hmm. And it's at the State Library this Thursday evening, uh, 6 o'clock till 7.30. Uh, I have been speaking with Jean-Dominique Merlot, who is the Chief Curator at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris, and I was also speaking with Adjunct Professor Wallace Kersop, who is from Monash University and uh, was also editor of the Australian Journal of French Studies for many years. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. Thank you.